There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. We are being slaughtered and dehumanized across this country in communities you took oaths to protect. LGBTQ issues are not political issues. They are not lifestyles. They are not beliefs. They are not choices. They are basic human rights. Survivors of Colorado's Club Q mass shooting demand action from Congress. Three of the people who spoke at today's hearing are here with me in the studio. Also tonight, more of Mark Meadows' text messages are revealed as the January 6th committee gets ready to release its report and make referrals. And Iran's brutal crackdown, including a second execution of a 23-year-old following weeks of anti-government protests. We begin tonight with the powerful testimony from the survivors of last month's shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs, where they spoke about the horror they experienced and blamed the violent and hate-filled rhetoric from the right for the deadly massacre. Michael Anderson recalled bartending at Club Q that night, the night before Transgender Day of Remembrance. The shooter entered our safe space in our home with the intention of killing as many people as possible as quickly as possible. They used a military-style weapon that exists solely for the intention of killing other human beings and began to hunt us down as if our lives meant nothing. To the politicians and activists who accuse LGBTQ people of grooming children and being abusers, shame on you. As leaders of our country, it is your obligation to represent all of us, not just the ones you happen to agree with. Another survivor, James Slaw, was preparing to leave with his partner and sister when a bullet pierced his right arm. To my horror, my sister, Charlene, was bleeding out. She had been shot over five times. My heart rended as uh, she tried to dial 911 with her good arm outstretched. I called out to her and I heard no response. Outside of these spaces, we are continually being dehumanized, marginalized, and targeted. The fear-based and hateful rhetoric surrounding the LGBTQ plus community, especially around trans individuals and drag performers, leads to violence. It incites violence. The shooting at Club Q tragically took the lives of five people and 17 others were injured. The massacre coming amid a rise in hate crimes against LGBTQ people. California State University San Bernardino found that reports of hate crimes against LGBTQ plus people increased by 51 percent in major cities in 2021. It's also a record-breaking year for anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country, with more than 300 introduced just this year alone. That includes Florida's Don't Say Gay law, banning discussion of sexuality and gender identity, which brought with it a massive 400 percent increase in anti-LGBTQ hate rhetoric online. At today's hearing, Brandon Wolf, survivor of the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, didn't mince words, calling Republicans responsible. For years, 
Cynical politicians and greedy grifters have joined forces with right-wing extremists to pour gasoline on anti-LGBTQ hysteria and terrorize our community. My own governor, Ron DeSantis, has trafficked in that bigotry to feed his insatiable political ambition and propel himself toward the White House. And speaking of Ron DeSantis, after President Biden signed into law the Respect for Marriage Act that would ensure federal recognition of same-sex and interracial marriage, the would-be 2024 Republican presidential candidate made clear he does not think protecting human rights is necessary. Was interracial marriage being even debated in this country? Nobody's talking about that. Uh, They're using the power, I think, of the federal government uh, in ways that will absolutely put religious institutions in difficult spots if you have people uh, that are so inclined to be very aggressive against that. And um, I don't think that it was there was certainly no need to do this. Joining me now are three people who spoke at that hearing, Club Q survivors Michael Anderson and James Slaw and Sarah Kate Ellis, president and CEO of GLAAD. I want to thank you all for being here and first start by asking how you're doing. Uh, Michael, how are you doing? Um, you know, we take it a day at a time, I feel, with the group of survivors that, you know, I'm close with and, and, and meeting and meet, being here with James. Um, you know, it's it's a day-by-day process. I mean, being here in Washington, D.C. is absolutely insane. And being able to have this platform to speak for my friends that have passed that you just showed on the screen earlier, um, it, that's why we're here. And that's, that's how I'm doing. And that's why I'm doing it. Yeah. And James, how are you doing? I know you're still injured. And your sister, Charlene, how is she doing as well? So uh, I'm I'm healing day by day. Uh, it, it is a day by day process, and uh, I didn't expect to be here. Honestly, uh, after just three weeks, you know, this is it's definitely surreal. Um, it, it- yeah. I'm sorry. Did I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I mean, I mean, the thing about it is uh, neither of you uh, expected to be activists. It wasn't your goal. You just went out to have fun, uh, right? And to be at the club. Um, but you are an activist, uh, Sarah Kate. This is what you do, and advocacy is what you do. So I, I want to just give let you give us sort of a big picture here. We, there's a poll that is out from GLAAD, uh, your organization, that says that 72% of transgender people are now more fearful. 48% of LGBTQ plus people are more fearful. Um, it, is that just because of the mass shootings like Pulse and Club Q, or is it also because of the laws and the rhetoric? I think so that actually was conducted right before Club Q. So I can't even imagine how fearful our community is now. Um, and it is because of the environment and the culture that we're living in. We just saw Ron DeSantis flat out lie and nobody held him accountable because actually Clarence Thomas is the one who said that he wants to go after Obergefell. He wants to go after loving. And these are decisions that help interracial marriage, that help, that support um, LGBTQ marriages. And so there is a direct attack on us. And he's one of the biggest attackers on us, actually. His rhetoric has been turned into fuel and a fire on social media media that then coalesces people to create action that's violent against us. And so it it is a continual thing that we're seeing at a level that we've never seen it before. And just to add to that, we've seen over 150 attacks on LGBTQ events 
this year so far. We've never even had to count those Mm -hmm. because there weren't attacks on LGBTQ events. But because of these anti-LGBTQ laws, because of these right-wing politicians and this unchecked social media, it's created a climate for our community that has us in fear. But we won't back down. Well, the one thing I will refute is that Clarence Thomas left loving out. Uh, But he did. He left loving out. He's an interracial marriage. Wonder why he left that out. But he did say that he would like to see Lawrence v. Texas go, which would mean literally kicking the door can arrest you just for being gay. That was the Texas case. And he said uh, he wanted to also go after um, contraception. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, to the point of the laws, as you did mention, what we've seen right now is we've had more than 300. We're going to put a chart right up on the screen that's got a map to it. More than 300 laws that target specifically LGBTQ plus people. Half of them target transgender people specifically. 23 states have um, introduced these laws. 13 have already passed them. And I wonder just for the two of you to just, the laws themselves are not violence, but the laws are connected to violence. Mm -hmm. And and what do you think when you hear legislators, uh, people like Lauren Boebert say things like, take your children to church, not drag bars, um, saying the the assistant secretary of health is out here trying to empower children to become transgender. The word is groom, Richard, not empower. Um, Calling people groomers. A North Carolina preschool using LGBTQ flashcards with a pregnant man to teach kids colors. We went from reading Rainbow to Randy Rainbow in a few decades. That kind of rhetoric and those How do they impact you? Um, It makes me quite angry. Um, And I think we all agree this is a this is absolutely insane that they continue to use this very harmful and and violent inducing language. Uh, But specifically to Lauren Bobert, she thinks that children are safer in churches than at drag shows. I'd like to to see the statistics behind that, because it appears to me that the the church has a serious problem with this exact thing she's accusing drag queens of doing. And that's unacceptable as well. But it seems like a lot of projection to me, and um, specifically Ron DeSantis. I am from Florida. I just moved out of Florida again back to Colorado just two months two months ago, and um, it was because largely of the policies Ron DeSantis is promoting. I did not feel welcome there anymore. I did not feel accepted there or safe there anymore. I didn't want to be a part of his his mini fascist regime he's creating down in the South. And uh, to me, he just seems like he's copying uh, Donald Trump's playbook. And I was not comfortable with that. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm glad I'm in Colorado now with the, the nation's first openly gay governor in our history, who is a decent, kind, respectable man who supports our community. And I'm grateful for that. And that is sort of one of the many ironies, right? I mean, Jared Polis is a history-making figure. I mean, I believe that he was a history-maker as the first uh, married um, gay man mm-hmm. in Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he's the first gay governor of the state of Colorado. So he's a history-making figure. So it's, Colorado is a state that's kind of going in both those directions at once, right? I mean, it's a place that in some ways is the most loving state. I grew up in Denver. In some ways, it's the most right-wing state. And how do you feel as a Coloradan living in a state that is both of those things, especially now? Yeah, so I've always kind of seen that dichotomy. Um, and part of it actually is one of the reasons uh, I didn't come out for a long time. Um, it is scary. It is fearful. But uh, at a certain point, you just have to be okay with who you are and you need to be loud and proud. Uh, so that's, you know, where I, I take that. And Colorado needs change in some places. And then, of course, in other places, you're okay to be who you are. So that's, I think, why I'm here is I want to help be that change. You know, the the, the Republicans, um, Sarah, Kate, um, were very upset <laughs> at the hearing that they felt targeted. Um, I want to play just a little bit of what a couple of them had to say. This is Jim Comer of 
Kentucky mm-hmm. and Pat Fallon of Texas, both their states are on the list of the states that are doing the laws, but here they are. This is a blame Republicans so we don't have to take responsibility for our own defund the police and soft on crime policies. I was listening to the testimony earlier and what we, we always fear, you know, as a child, you'd fear the, the, the boogeyman and the, the six-armed lady in the closet and all these, you know, illogical fears that we have. What I want to avoid, though, is to place blame on people that have a different political philosophy. I don't know about the six-armed lady in the closet, but I'm not sure what de- defund the police is not even a thing that's, that, rep- that anyone is doing. So they want to defund the FBI. But I will leave that there <laughs> and just allow you to reply. I would say what I would have liked to have heard them say is that we support the LGBTQ community. We don't think that you're a political act or that we should politicize you. We think you're human. We want to make sure that you feel safe in this country. You belong here, too. And that's not at all what they said. Why couldn't they say that? Why did they have to jump to defunding the police and more just bull, honestly, that they continue to these these narratives as opposed to addressing the challenge? Here you had a room full of queer people who are saying to you, we don't feel safe in this country. Speak to that. If you really, truly care about your constituents, then speak to that. And I think that they didn't speaks volumes. Has has GLAAD had any contact with the log cabin Republicans as an organization or any individuals from that organization to talk about these issues? Off and on over the years, we haven't in recent time. I think with Trump coming into office, Mm. it got very politicized. Um, And I think that we are we're open to moving forward like we need to move forward as a community and we are moving forward to as a community but we have to use facts to do that so if you want to talk and use facts in real life then we can have that conversation but if you're going to continue to point your fingers elsewhere and not talk about what's happening in this country for the LGBTQ community. We can't engage. Yeah. And, and you know, J- James, oh, I don't know. You guys, you guys seem very young to me. So, I mean, you guys uh, have, have not been uh, around as long, but the country really has moved a, a tremendous amount mm-hmm. in just the last generation, probably in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I wonder how you feel about this other dichotomy, because you just had the president of the United States sign a pretty historic law mm-hmm. repealing the Defensive Marriage Act, which I think is older than you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and repealing it and replacing it with a not perfect, but a respect for marriage act that at least provides some federal protections. Does legislating in that way make you feel safer? I think it's a step in the right direction. It was an honor to be at the White House when that signing uh, happened yesterday. Uh, and, I, you know, it is definitely a step in the right direction. What I'm hoping that this bill does is I'm hoping that it opens up that conversation for yeah. more legislation, for more positive rhetoric and understanding. And I'm just hoping that we can we can see that change. These small ripples turn into big waves. I'm going to give you the last word, Michael, because we are, we are counting on uh, your generation to fix all of this. So just fix it for us, please. Um, and what do you want to see? What would you like to see us Gen X and up folks yeah, do? Absolutely. Um, I was asked today, do you think your testimony today is going to change anything? And I said, well, I sure hope so, because if it doesn't, I'm just going to keep talking. So um, things need to change across the board. Um, the, the Respect for Marriage Act is a huge accomplishment, a historic feat. It's well past due, and it's a shame we have to pass that today. But due to our Supreme Court situation yeah. we're in, it's a necessity. Um, but it does that does make me feel safer. And it is a, a silver lining. 
lining or a rainbow lining, if you will, to yeah. this uh, backdrop of, of the Club Q uh, attack. So yeah. uh, it, we are moving in the right direction, um, but we will only continue to do that if we fight for it. Well, keep talking. Uh, right. That is great advice <laughs> that all of you keep talking. Thank you all very much. And Clarence Thomas should thank y'all because he got the uh, you know interracial marriage thing as a bonus for free yes. yeah. without even trying. Uh, Michael Anderson, James Slaw, and Sarah Kate Ellis, thank you all very much. And coming up next on The Readout, why it is no surprise that Mark Meadows, a former and founding member of the Tea Party, became the critical nexus in the plot to overturn the election. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Last night, we told you about the nearly three dozen Republican members of Congress who were texting with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in their brazen efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And according to one of the lead investigative reporters for Talking Points Memo, which revealed those texts, there could be even more that we do not yet know. What we do know is that the Republican Party has truly made the country ungovernable. I mean, look how hard they worked to undermine the very democracy they took an oath to protect. And while there are some very some very vocal recent additions to the crowd, like Margie Green, the beginning of the end of this being a governable country was more than 10 years ago with the rise of the Tea Party, stemming from the right's fear about demographic change here at home. Some of the same Tea Party candidates not only remain in Congress today, but they've been normalized over time to the point that one of them, Mark Meadows, was the chief of staff to the president of the United States, Donald Trump during the failed coup attempt. And now, after more than a year of investigations by the January 6th committee, we will finally found out on Monday if some of these same people will face any form of accountability for what they did and for their role in the attack on the Capitol. And joining me now is Michael Steele, MSNBC political analyst, former chair of the Republican National Committee and host of the Michael Steele podcast, and Asha Rangappa, former special agent with the FBI's counterterrorism division and the assistant dean of Yale University's Jackson School of Public Affairs. We only bring on the classiest and the go. best folks on the readout. But I got to start with you because I remember back when I used to do a dayside show, um, I had you on and we talked about the fact that you called it a tiger by the tail. Right. That the that that that's what the Tea Party was. It was a tiger that Republicans thought they could hold by the tail, and they just realized that they eventually they couldn't. They could no. That's exactly right. In fact, I remember a, a number of conversations with some of the political intelligentsia here in town, oxymoron, that ironic <laughs> as that is, uh, about what we would do with this emerging um, uh, energy inside the party, which was at first started out around 
about the sort of constitutional principles of republicanism. And finance stuff. And finance. Yeah. A lot about finance and a lot about the Constitution, our rights, sort of that libertarian piece kind of raising no. up. Mm-hmm. It, it, it then morphed by 2012 into something much worse and much more uh, difficult. But the idea uh, was very prevalent that we could control this. So no one, and certainly I wasn't, in fact, talked about it many times on this air, should have been surprised when you got to 2016 and then you have this full-throated onslaught by Trump and Trumpism that you had those out there in leadership who believed they could control it. Remember the thinking on Capitol Hill with uh, Speaker Ryan and his crew. That's why Reince was in the White House. Yeah. Reince was, was, was the Speaker's guy, not yeah. Trump's. So we would be managing. Well, what did we find out six months later? Yeah. Reince standing his behind on a tarmac and yeah. got kicked off the plane. So... The reality and the truth of it is you cannot control that tiger by the tail. You have to deal with it teeth and all, um, substantively in real terms. Otherwise, you get eaten. Well, and, and Asha, the, the issue is, is that I think even the media really failed to understand how much of the anger and rage that was at the core of the base of the party um, that was that, were, that became Tea Partiers and who supported Tea Partiers like Ron DeSantis was a Tea Partier. Um, Jim Jordan was one of them. Mark Meadows. This was a whole group of people who've now fanned out into our politics. But the, the core of the movement, when you looked at Public Religion Research Institute and others, was race anxiety. It was ethnic anxiety. It was anxiety about change of status and loss of status. That's what really drove the passion. Once that mor- morphed into MAGAism and Trump congealed it with his celebrity, it was a dangerous thing that I think no one really took into account. Well, now we're at the point where we're finding out that at least 34 of them were furiously texting one of their Tea Party friends uh, at Mark Meadows, trying to make a coup really happen. And so I wonder, as you look at, you know, the possibility that January 6th is going to put out, you know, recommendations for whatever they think is going to happen, whether it's ethics things or referrals for criminal justice, what do we do with that? We have sitting politicians who were channeling that ethnic anxiety to try to overturn the government. Yes, well, I think what's notable about those text messages, so first we need to understand that Mark Meadows is the epicenter of this entire you know, the the architecture of this coup. Um, I have a diagram on Twitter that kind of shows it, but basically he's in the middle and he's connected to all of these different threads to uh, the Kraken team that's down in the state legislatures, to DOJ that's trying to do this, uh, you know, fraudulent letter, um, to the war room that's connected to these militia groups. And then he's connected to these members of Congress. I do think that The members of Congress's role in this is, to me, seems like a hole in what the uh, January 6th committee was investigating. It seems like they haven't really addressed that. And I don't see that being a part of their report. Now, I don't know if that's out of courtesy to fellow legislatures, if there was going to be constitutional issues about getting them to testify, things like that. But, you know, I don't know that that's going to be a part of their accountability scheme. And I don't know that DOJ is necessarily investigating that either, Joy. So I'm not sure what is going to come of it on that front. 
Well, I mean, it, that's the challenge, Michael. These are yeah. sitting members of Congress. They're still sitting. <laughs> they're still sitting and they're serving with them. And so, right, the things that, that, the, that we, we've heard are possibilities from the January 6th committee, the referrals, criminal prosecution, campaign finance, ethics committee stuff, which we know members have done against other members before, bar discipline, going after people's, uh, you know, l- l- you know whether they can be a lawyer, inspectors general, office special counsel, that kind of thing. There's the, 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 the one that hasn't been mentioned, the dog that hasn't hunted, is 14th Amendment. Right. I mean, the 14th Amendment right. reads, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector or a member of the vice president who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution, engage in insurrection or rebellion. So, so that, I mean, but there, none of those dogs seem to be hunting. They're not hunting. And there's actually, and I'd be curious, Asha's uh, view on this, uh, a very, I think, good reason why. They don't know how to do it. <laughs> they don't, I mean, the, the Justice Department, the political system, the, 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 the people in the country don't have a real, we've never been here before where we've had so many sitting members of Congress engage in one coercive act of, of, of insurrection. Um, how do you deal with that? I mean, we can't, we, we can't put our head around, should we prosecute the former president? I mean, people wringing their hands over these things. So th- this, this period, um, with the January 6th committee, they're struggling with, okay, so if we go down this road, will the Justice Department respond? Right. If they don't respond, what does that say? So I think that's, a, once we're past this, yeah. and you, you sort of break that fever in the future for those who want to engage, yeah. y'all be careful because you're going to get locked up. Well, I mean, and, and also, I mean, they did it after the Civil War. I mean, the one time that we've had to do this was after the Civil right. War, and that's why there's a 14th Amendment. And the idea was those people couldn't come back to Congress, and they shouldn't come back to Congress. But now they're there, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of legal accountability ahead. Yes, and we also don't have a precedent for how to apply the 14th Amendment, Section 3, in this situation. It's not a self-executing provision. Right. Um, right. So even that part of it, even if you were to apply it, say the, the, com- the committee says all of these people are insurrectionists. Okay, then I guess you have to take that to a court and somehow disqualify them or get them removed. I mean, I'm not really sure what what yeah. happens, but as Michael said, we're in just completely uncharted territory and uncharted legal territory, and I think it emphasizes joy why some of the escape valves that we have in our constitution mm-hmm. like impeachment are really important because the criminal code is not designed yeah. to handle things like this when it's done by someone who occupies the office of the presidency. You're absolutely right. I, I do want to make a note that, you know, tonight I, I, I did attend this, um, that, you know, there is still a little bit of tradition ba- uh, still in Washington. The unveiling today of the portrait of Speaker Pelosi, she will be the one woman in the hall of the Speaker's Gallery. There is her portrait. President Obama uh, uh, saluted her by, by video. John Boehner showed up. Uh, and gave a it's very moving and Makes emotional sense. encomium to her, Chuck Schumer and others. That's, that's the sign of hope, that there are still some people out there who are willing to reach across the island, give credit where credit is due, which right. is what Boehner said, that, and he did. Uh, Michael Steele and Asha Rangappa, thank you very much. And still ahead, Iran gets booted from the U.N. Women's Commission in response to its brutal crackdown on women's rights and anti-government protesters. More on that next.
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Today, the United States requested that the Islamic Republic of Iran be removed from the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, which is a body exclusively dedicated to the promotion of gender equality and the empowerment of women. Iranian women and men across ethnicities and social classes stood up to protest. They have demanded their basic human rights. They have come together through a simple rallying call. Women, life, freedom. The Iranian government responded with brutality. Let's do right by women and girls around the world. Let's vote to remove Iran from the Commission on the Status of Women. Moments later, 29 countries backed the motion. The expulsion comes after three months of protests following the death of Masa Amini. Iranians of all ages and genders have taken to the streets to object to the repressive theocratic regime and its brutal tactics. In an effort to end the protests, the Iranian government has begun killing protesters. On Monday, they publicly executed a second prisoner. Majidresa Ranavard had been convicted on the charge of waging war against God. For that, He was hanged by Crane, a method intentionally selected by the regime in order to maximize pain. Those condemned are alive as the Crane lifts them off their feet. Opposition activists tweeted that his family was not informed of the execution until after his death, when officials called his mother, who had just recently visited him and had no idea execution was coming. His family was told that they could find Ranavard at a cemetery. When they turned up, Security agents were burying his body. A former Iranian professional soccer player has also been convicted of the same crime, but it is unclear if he will face the same sentence. According to a human rights activist in Iran, almost 500 people have been killed and nearly 20,000 have been detained by authorities since the protests began. Joining me now is Karim Sajapour, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, I am sick to my stomach reading that, honestly, um, Karim. And there's there's a helpless feeling that's kicking in. I mean, this man's mom was told to come and visit her son and went home thinking she was going to have her son alive. And the next day they killed him. You know, the scenes in Iran uh, are a reflection of, of humanity. You know, there's, you see enormous cruelty and you see enormous courage from the population. Yeah. And so regimes which have lost their legitimacy have to rely on brutality. And the Islamic Republic of Iran has long lost its legitimacy. 
The question is whether these executions and imprisonments and brutality, is that going to pour cold water and stop the protests, or is that going to actually pour gasoline on the protests and uh, further strengthen people's re resolve? So far, these protests have continued despite yeah. the brutality. And, and also, I think from the international community standpoint, you know, the United Nations can only do so much. Um, there's not going to be an invasion of Iran. Um, let's just be clear that it's not something the West is has an appetite for after the Iraq war. Um, so taking them off of the Commission on, on Women's Rights, that's one thing that can be done. You know, removing them from the good standing of the international community, which has been done with Russia as well. In, a, in the end, does that move that regime out? Does it do anything to change their behavior? In some ways, the global movement against Iran is reminiscent of the global movement uh, against apartheid South Africa. Mm -hmm. And it is tr it's an effort to globally isolate this regime. And I think what it does is it, it probably uh, accentuates internal fissures within government elites, between those who want to continue on the current path of Iran being this revolutionary cause and its only allies being North Korea, Venezuela, Russia, and Syria, and those within the Iranian system who view Iran as a nation state and want to prioritize the country's national interests. We know from history that authoritarian change happens with two things. You need the pressure from below, popular pressure, which we have an ample amount in Iran, and then the fissures at the top. And I think that global isolation helps to make clear to even regime elites that if you go down the current path, it's a dead end for you. You know, I know, you know, I was very opposed to the Iraq war. And one of the things that made it really difficult was that you had this sort of Western created sort of opposition group that would travel throughout the United States telling all these horror stories about Saddam Hussein, and it was probably true, um, but sort of trying to gin up the idea of war. Um, and so the question of authenticity is really, I think, important in this. Is there an authentic opposition party or opposition group who we, as the world who supports the Iranian brave, incredible young people, men and women, especially these women yeah. who are out there, is there someone we can get behind? Is there an organization we should be supporting? So what's happening in Iran, in my view, is this epic drama between this young, modern population that wants fundamental change, and they have the, at their back 2,500 years of history. It's a very patriotic movement. Mm -hmm. It's up against a regime which is highly armed, highly organized, deeply ideological, and ruthless. It has no uh, plan B for where to go, so they're willing to use enormous brutality. The regime survives when the regime is united and the society is mm -hmm. divided. Now, what we have in Iran is perhaps the most united society we've ever seen since 1979 revolution and a very united diaspora as well. So far, it hasn't coalesced around an organized opposition movement with very clear leadership. But I, I think that that is in the works. It's starting to happen now. Is there, is there an Iranian Nelson Mandela? You know, there's several people who, um, you know, there, there, there's a woman called Nasrin Sotoudeh. She's based inside the country. There are people like Masi Alinejad, yeah. who's based in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. um, people, frankly, it's been a movement of individuals with enormous uh, courage who are everyday individuals, singers, uh, athletes, uh, ethnic minorities have exhibited enormous courage. And as you said, the women of Iran have really been an inspiration to the entire world. Yeah, the people who are being executed are young. I mean, there's something like 20,000 people who've been incarcerated. Many of them are teenagers. Absolutely. And this is one of the things we've noticed that uh, there's around 500 people that have been killed so far 
More than 60 have been minors, uh, children. And this is a regime which has one of the highest rates of execution in the world, yeah. including against minors. And it's one of the youngest countries in the world with such incredible potential, so such brilliance um, and such bravery. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. And thank, thank you for that South Africa analogy. It's a really good way for us to get our minds around it. Think of them and isolate them the same way because that yeah. regime is, it, it shouldn't survive. Um, thank you, Joe. Um, thank you very much for being here. Okay, up next, ignition sequence go. Scientists at the world's largest nuclear fusion facility announced an exciting breakthrough, bringing us one step closer to harnessing the power of the sun. We are geeking out with nuclear engineer Chris Jones next. Last week at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, scientists at the National Ignition Facility achieved fusion ignition. It's the first time it has ever been done in a laboratory, anywhere in the world. Simply put, this is one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. That was Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm uh, on what a BFD, this scientific breakthrough on nuclear fusion is. Nuclear fusion, the energy that literally makes the stars shine, is a way to create energy devoid of the pollution and greenhouse gases caused by the burning of fossil fuels and the dangerous long-lived radioactive waste created by current nuclear power plants, as the Times puts it. The result announced is the first fusion reaction in a laboratory setting that actually produced more energy than it took to start the reaction. Scientists have been trying to do this for decades, and until now, it's been seen as a sort of magic sci-fi solution to climate change. It's going to take a while for nuclear fusion to be available for widespread use, but it is definitely a good sign for the future. And joining me now is Chris Jones, who is the Democratic nominee for governor of Arkansas this year. But more importantly, he is also a nuclear engineer and physicist and my friend and nerd. Hey, <laughs> Thank fellow you, nerd. fellow nerd, Good fellow nerd. Okay, like, all right, fellow nerd. Explain yes. it. I'm so excited about this, but what does uh, it actually mean? Because I explained it, but I don't really get it. I'm sure you get it. You did well. You did well. Did so, okay. First of all, do you know how many phases of matter there are? No. There, people think there are three. Okay. Solid, liquid, and gas. But right. there's actually a fourth, plasma. Okay. The sun is just a plasma. And nuclear fusion is what the sun is made up of. Okay. It's just a bunch of nuclear fusion reactions. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it's two small particles. That combine together, okay. and when they combine, okay. energy is released. Okay, that's it. That's awesome. That's that is it. awesome. So, like, and it's amazing, though. It is amazing. So we've seen this in movies. So, so I, you know, yeah. there, there's a lot of movies that kind of reference it. So for our audience who sort of are, are movie lovers, Back to the Future, mm-hmm. uh, there was at the end of the 1985 sci-fi classic, Dr. Emmett Brown soups up his tricked-out time-traveling DeLorean by feeding trash into a canister, and it's called the Mr. Fusion Home Energy Reactor. Spider-Man 2 had this mm-hmm. in it. Iron Man, his suit is like mm-hmm. a fusion reactor, and that's like a cool thing. So this is like sci-fi stuff. Yeah. How do we make that into a a real thing. Are they going to be like fusion cars? Well, it could be if we make the investment now yeah. and we put in the energy and effort now for the future we want to see tomorrow. I mean, as you can tell, so I worked on this stuff when I was in grad school some 20 years ago. Right. And we were trying to figure out how to actually get the right energy outputs from this fusion reaction. Right. Now, the cool thing is what I was working on was levitating a half ton magnet in midair. Okay. I love it. And creating it. a plasma around it. That's awesome. Because there, there, there are generally two different ways you can do it. Right. right. One way is, imagine, if you would, you had some hot grits. 
Or oatmeal. Okay. And you're trying to take those hot grits and shape them into a snowman with your bare hands. Okay. That's what you, that's the kind of fusion reactor that uses superconducting magnets to try to shape the plasma. The other way is what we saw the breakthrough. And that's kind of, think about the Justice League. League. Okay. When they revived Superman. Yeah, yeah. And the Flash was running full speed. Yeah. He was generating enough energy to touch the mother box, which then generated more energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they did with a little device. They generated a lot of energy. Okay. They created an explosion that then activated the nuclear reaction. How is Thanos involved? Are we going to be able to snap our fingers and end the third of the thing? We don't leave Thanos alone. Okay, so I mean, the thing is, is that I feel like this whole fusion idea, it is kind of the idea, like when I was a kid, they're like, if you find a UFO, the reason you want to find a UFO is that they are probably using fusion reactors to get here, Mm -hmm. and that if we could replicate that. The fact that now we're replicating yeah. it is actually a pretty big deal scientifically. And so it, it, it's in terms of like the how people should think about this pragmatically. Mm-hmm. What kind of a timeline should we be putting ourselves on before we can get from this idea yeah. to fusion cars? You know, it's still a ways off unless you have a breakthrough like we had in the medical field. So you think about when COVID hit. Yeah. Our normal way of creating vaccines took a certain number of years. Right. But they got a new process, and that new process shrunk it down to okay. months. Yeah. Now, we could do that in this space with the right investment in energy and effort. But who knows when that breakthrough will come? Yeah. And, and so the idea is that this for be, this to be government investment, because the thing that is also frightening is the idea that you might get like an Elon Musk character and they decide yeah, they want to do it. Scary. Because we, this has got to be public investment. This should be It public. has to be, because you're talking about the cheapest cleanest, most sustainable form of energy known to mankind. No Koch brothers. There you go. You don't have to deal with it. I mean, because the politics around oil, yeah. the politics around oil and gas are really dirtying up our politics, yeah. right? And it's twisting our politics mm-hmm. in this crazy way. Mm-hmm. So if you think about 50 years from now, that isn't in our politics yeah. because that isn't what we use. That's like a breakthrough that would actually help our politics too. It will. I mean, and when you layer on the geopolitical dynamics that go on, right? Like now you're saying we can actually shift where the power levers are. Yeah. And maybe the Koch brothers can like buy Twitter or do something else with their time and maybe do that <laughs> instead. Uh, <laughs> Chris Jones, thank you for coming and nerding out with me. We have to do this more often. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, up next, marking 10 years since the school shooting everybody thought was horrific enough to finally turn things around on gun control. We'll be right back. The majority of those who died today were children. Uh, Beautiful little kids between the ages of 5 and 10 years old. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. Ten years ago today, President Obama addressed the nation after a gunman with unfettered access to firearms entered Sandy Oak Elementary School in Connecticut, shooting and killing 20 first graders and six adults. Congress took action working to pass legislation addressing gun violence. But four months after the massacre, It was defeated in the Senate. Joe Biden was vice president when Sandy Hook occurred. He had a front row seat to how a mass shooting under a Democratic president, a black one no less, provided fodder for Republicans hooked on NRA money. Today, as President Biden recalled the Sandy Hook massacre, calling it the unthinkable. Tragically, a school shooting isn't so unthinkable in this country anymore. 
Since 2013, we've had 1,000 incidents of gunfire on school grounds in the U.S., resulting in 331 deaths and 698 injuries. Sandy Hook marked the start of a new era, but not an era many of us welcomed. Mass shootings began to increase in scale and frequency, sometimes several happening in the matter of days, not even breaking into the news cycle. Sandy Hook also marked the beginning of gun conspiracy theorists flourishing online. Within hours of the shooting, InfoWars host Alex Alex Jones, king of all trolls, told his audience that it was staged, that the grieving families were crisis actors. He would repeat those lies for years. This year, Jones was ordered to pay more than a billion dollars for spreading those lies. This was also the year President Biden signed the most sweeping gun reform bill in decades. It was a victory made possible by the modern day and youth led gun safety movement. The victory, however, also has revealed how little has changed. When just months earlier, 19 children, most of them fourth graders, were fatally shot just days before summer vacation would have begun. Fourth graders. Those kids fleeing Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, are the lucky ones. Because here in America, a child coming home alive constitutes lucky. And yet, they will be marked by this tragedy. They will be raised with trauma, as were the kids who survived Sandy Hook, who are now juniors and seniors in high school, thinking about college, learning how to drive, still so young, and still so unsafe. Because that's the thing about anniversaries especially for tragic ones such as this. We honor the dead, but also the living. We hold space for the suffering. We wonder what happens next. But we also commemorate the rage, the call to action, the empathy that drives us to protect people over politics and guns. We cannot get numb to it. This is not normal. So we vote. We fight. And today, we remember. And that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.